Welcome to another edition of Essential ESG, coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm Phoebe Wynne-Pope, Head of Responsible Business and ESG, and today I'm talking to Joshua Aird, Senior Associate in our Responsible Business Practice on the relevance of statutory charters of rights for business. Josh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Phoebe. It's good to be back. Australia is currently the only OECD country without a national charter or Bill of Rights. But there have been a few recent developments that bring into question about whether that might be about to change. In August this year at the Australian Labor Party National Conference, the ALP committed to considering a statutory charter of human rights for Australia, which follows the Human Rights Commission's position paper, which was released earlier this year. In March, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights began its inquiry into Australia's human rights framework. And that included whether the current Commonwealth framework is fit for purpose or whether it could be strengthened by the introduction of a human rights charter. These developments all follow the enactment of statutory charters of rights in the ACT in 2004, in Victoria in 2006, and in Queensland in 2019. The likelihood of uh, human rights protection being enhanced through statutory charters of rights in the remaining states and territories, and also federally, is increasing. And these statutory charters of rights don't just impact public entities, but they're increasingly relevant to how business is being conducted in Australia. And Josh, I wonder whether you can talk to us a little bit about Australian statutory charters of rights work. Yeah, not a problem, Phoebe. So in Australia, similar to the charters in New Zealand, the UK and Canada, they follow what's known as the new Commonwealth model of rights charters. And there are four central features uh, to these new Commonwealth model charters. The first is that there is a codified charter of rights And that's distinct from piecemeal rights protection, which we see currently at the federal level. Uh, The second is that there is generally rights review of new legislation prior to its enactment. So this is both at the executive level, so generally ministers or others proposing a piece of legislation will be required to assess the compatibility of that legislation. But it's also through a review by parliamentary committees. The third central feature is some form of judicial review of the legislation and administrative decisions for compatibility with rights. And this generally takes the form of the courts applying rights, consistent interpretations to legislation where possible, and having the power to invalidate administrative decisions that are not compatible with rights. And the the fourth feature is that ultimately parliament has the say on the enforceability of statutes. So this could be contrasted with the United States, for example, where the Supreme Court can strike down laws which infringe on protected rights in the Constitution. So Australian courts wouldn't be able to do that. So when you talk about the piecemeal protection at the federal level, that first codified charter of rights being distinct from that piece, what do you mean by that? Can you explain to us a little bit what that actually looks like? Yeah, of course. So at the moment we have few rights which are protected in Australia's constitution. So, for example, the freedom of political communication. 
But we also have various legislation which protects rights, predominantly non-discrimination rights in legislation in Australia. So, for example, the right not to be discriminated against on the basis of race is included in legislation, but all of the rights in Australia aren't in one central document. Right, so that's like the, the the patchwork, if you like, of occupational health and safety regulation and a, a lot of those rights are found in in those workplace laws. That's right. So when we're thinking about then the impact of a charter of rights on business, what does that look like? How does that, if, if the charter of rights is really a, around regulating government, how does it impact on business? Well, Australia has a, a relatively highly regulated economy and businesses often rely on administrative decisions of government, whether that be through the grant of statutory licences, project approvals, permits, and in some cases, tenure. So the introduction of a statutory charter of rights means that when those licences, approvals or, or permits are being granted the decision-maker must give proper consideration to the impact on human rights and also that decision must be compatible with rights. So what does that mean, like giving proper consideration to human rights? What does that mean the decision-maker has to do? It can really be broken up into three components. The, the first is identifying which rights are affected by the decision. The second is identifying and seriously considering the impact of their decision on those rights and ultimately balancing the countervailing interests of rights, impacts and the other benefits of the decision. This requires that the decision maker is, is fully informed uh, of the rights and the benefits of a particular decision. And if they're not, it could mean that proper consideration isn't given to those rights, which may give rise to a challenge of that decision. And at the end of the day, the determination on, of whether or not a decision is compatible with rights will generally result in a balancing exercise and a decision of whether or not the benefits are proportionate to and justify the potential limitations or impacts on rights. So if a decision then is incompatible with rights or the decision-making process didn't adequately consider the, the rights that, that were going to be impacted, what does that mean? A decision may be uh, susceptible to being invalidated through a challenge in the courts and the Australian charters have what's known as a, as a piggyback clause, which means that in order to bring a claim for a breach of human rights, the claimant must have an otherwise valid cause of action. So while a Human Rights Act in and of itself may not increase litigation, we do expect that an increased number of cases will contain human rights causes of action, particularly given the broader standing that's often afforded to individuals and groups in human rights cases. So let me make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. So if I have a human rights complaint about a decision that's made, I can't bring that complaint on its own, but I need to have another cause of action to add my human rights complaint to. 
Yeah, that's right. So you can't just sue on the basis of a breach of human rights. There must be an, another claim that you attach the human rights claim to. And generally, we see these as judicial review claims where human rights are then tacked on to those, those applications. So ha- have we been seeing this happen? Is this, is this just a, a theory at this stage or are we already seeing, seeing some challenges? No, we've already seen uh, a steady increase uh, of challenges to decisions of, of government in the states and, and territories which have these charters of rights. The energy and resources sector has been significantly impacted by the Queensland Human Rights Act. The land court in Queensland recommended that the grant of an environmental authority uh, to Waratah Coal not be approved partly on the basis that a new coal mine would be incompatible with rights. And that case really highlighted the land court's obligation to consider compatibility with human rights and its recommendations that it makes to the minister. And that includes like its recommendations on mining leases and environmental authorities, right? That's right. And it's not just prior to licences and environmental authorities being approved that we're seeing challenges be mounted. The Environmental Defenders Office or, or EDO has recently launched the challenge to Blue Energy's gas field. And that's on the basis that the license, which has already been granted, may contribute to worsening climate change and blue energy infringes uh, on a number of, of rights that are protected by the Human Rights Act, including the right to life and the right to culture. And we're seeing a lot of those links between climate change Um, People pursuing climate change objectives through the use of human rights, which you can listen to in some of our other podcasts. So are we seeing challenges only to mining projects or are there challenges to other kinds of developments on human rights grounds? Yeah, that's a good question. We're also seeing challenges to proposed property developments on on human rights grounds. There have been a number of examples in Victoria where third parties have included compliance with the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities in their grounds for opposing particular property developments. There are two interesting aspects of the decisions which have come out of Victoria. Uh, the, The first is that there was a confirmation that individual planning permits and decisions made by local government must be compatible with human rights. And this compatibility must be assessed on a case-by-case basis. And while the cases have indicated that a development which is consistent with the relevant planning scheme would also likely be consistent with human rights, there have been instances where the particular human rights impacts have been found to be a matter for more detailed consideration as, as, as part of the merits for hearing the relevant permit application. So, so this is really a confirmation of the role that human rights play in individual permit decisions and ultimately increases pressure on business to ensure that they not only understand but take steps to mitigate the potential negative impacts on human rights. And the the second interesting aspect of these cases has been the acceptance by the courts that the decisions of governments relating to large infrastructure projects can also be subject to a valid claim 
of a breach of human rights, but particularly where those rights relate to cultural heritage. For example, it may be as a consequence of a, a road project or a transmission line or, or other infrastructure projects which impact land and traditional land use rights. This all sounds like it's making the planning and the permit process more difficult for business. What do business need to do to prepare and make sure that their operations are able to proceed in the way that they are planning? Well, it it really highlights the need to develop strong human rights due diligence frameworks and include human rights impacts assessments in businesses' risk assessments, environmental assessments, and in the development of business activities that require these administrative approvals. In relation to projects, it's important that businesses engage with impacted rights holders early on in the process to identify and address any concerns and rights impacts that may arise. It's also important that project impacts are minimised by ensuring early consideration of of human rights, including free prior informed consent, which we've previously discussed. And ultimately, businesses should seek to mitigate the impacts on rights to ensure that any impacts which, which do arise can be balanced with the benefits of a project and are proportionate. In the past, human rights risks and and impacts have generally been considered as as non-financial risks to a business. But ultimately, there's there's really little question now that many human rights risks ultimately also present material risks to business, both with commercial and financial implications. I think that you've given us such a great overview of the statutory charters, of how they operate and how they're impacting businesses and their, particularly in their planning processes and, and what that looks like. If there's a move to a Commonwealth charter, we could imagine that similar claims would be likely to be brought where Commonwealth decision makers are involved, which will increase and keep that complexity going. And it's pretty clear Uh, from this and from a whole range of other human rights developments that we've been covering on the podcast that businesses really need to get on top of their human rights impacts of their operations, their supply chains, and to be really thinking about their human rights due diligence. Oh, absolutely, Phoebe. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks for coming on the show. It's always great to have you and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Phoebe. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal or other advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.